Hello, welcome to Pictures and Popcorn. I am Matt. And I am Lenny. And today we're going to be talking about Birdman. It's a film that you can watch on Netflix. And it's a drama that takes place over one continuous take. It's real good. There's a lot of spoilers. So watch it first. Enjoy. So, I very recently finally watched Birdman for the first time. And how did you find it? It, it was very good. It was very, very good. Good. I We should do asterisk here. It's called Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. I, am t- I, I don't know why. I do like it when movies have like the little title in the parentheses afterwards. I don't know. It's just like, mm, look at you. Mm. It's cute. It's, like, it's almost like a throwback to um, like the emo bands yeah. that used to have obnoxiously long titles for their songs. <laughs> <laughs> Not that this is that. Um, so this is a film that um, is technically in one big long take. Um, it does a lot of time jumps, but it hides them. Um, and it's about a guy who used to act. He um, he was a superhero. He played a, a person called Birdman. And he's now doing a stage show because he's essentially trying to get himself seen as a serious actor rather than just someone who does superhero films um and then it turns out that he actually has the powers that the superhero that you played had and it's like a character drama and it's super bizarre but really well done so because from what i've gathered the ending is left on like a note where it could have been taken either way so the ending of the film throughout the entire movie there's all of these illusions that the main character played by michael keaton is suffering with these moments of psychosis he's hearing the voice of his alter ego of birdman talking to him basically the voice of all these doubts um all of the issues and things he's there just bouncing off of him Mm -hmm. and throughout the film he has these various mental breaks he starts trashing his rooms using these powers but it's only ever seen to be just him in the room no one else is around when this is happening so and it's very open-ended as to whether it's actually happening or yeah. as to whether it's actually um it's just his his perception of it and i like that the ending kind of could go either way so towards the climax of the film um during the play that they're putting on there's meant to be a prop gun and the climax of the play michael keaton's character this is character shoots himself in the face in front of the audience it has a fake wig that spurts out blood and for the final night of the previews, he swapped it out for a real gun. At the, at the Earlier on in the film, it was mentioned by Edward Norton's character that the gun he has looks too fake and no one's going to take it seriously. Uh, he swaps it out for a real gun and ends up shooting off his nose in front of the whole theatre while attempting to commit suicide. He survives, goes to hospital, and he's lauded as this new face of shock theatre rather than people understanding that he was trying to kill himself. Which then, which then leads to him jumping out of the window after some more discussions and some more reflections. And his daughter enters the room and she looks out of the window, looks down to the ground and also looks up in the sky. And it's very, and the film just cuts off there. Like the last shot is of Emma Stone's character just looking out the window bewildered. And it's, I don't know, what's your take on it? Because I, I liked the angle that that was his perception, that this was him feeling like he was causing all those things to happen like at the start of the film 
there's an actor in the play who he absolutely hates. He outright hates and he wants him to get sacked. And the light falls off from the ceiling, hits him on the head. He gets taken to hospital and replaced by Edward Norton's character. And Michael Keaton's like, yeah, I did that. I caused that to happen. So like, I, I feel like it could be done either way because it's not explicitly stated how he caused it to happen. I think that's sort of the point, isn't it? I think I think that they yeah. were wanting it to be slightly ambiguous and that then gave them the opportunity to be quite um, adventurous in the things that they were showing because it could be, well, is it him having some form of delusions or does he actually have these powers or is it something completely different? Like, was it just yeah, no, I like that. God that, that that light fell? And I think the fact that they left that purposefully um ambiguous really helps the film like they oh, aren't yeah. just trying to tell you what it is they are saying like mm, he doesn't know because he's if he is hallucinating he wouldn't know that and no one else sees these things so don't know you know it's yeah, good I, I do i i always like the unreliable aspect i'll try that sentence again I always like the unreliable narrator aspect when it's done right. Like in this film, when we don't quite know what's real and we don't quite know what's what. And also like in Joker, things like that, where the things you that have been portrayed to you as real. This does it better than Joker, though. No, I, I agree. Joker did this and then went, oh, turns out it's not real. Here's some flashbacks. And it's like, no, we didn't. Yeah, no, I agree. That, that's, that is like... Show, turning around at the end, showing him dead on the floor, and then showing a load of flashbacks to the fact that he never actually had powers anyway. Yeah, that, um, that was very much on the nose. Um, I just mean in terms of execution. Yeah. This like, did it yes. ambiguously. That yes. didn't. Yeah. No, I get you, and I like it. It's probably the best that I've seen a film do it. Maybe, um, and the fact that it was done like that in within the circumstances of how they then actually made the film like the fact that it's that kind of story portraying some things that needs either heavy cg or um what's it called where where they're like harnessed in to like something on a like on the roof or whatever they've done all those kind of shots within a film that's supposed to be one long take yeah that is an incredible feat there are a few other films that have done a similar thing where the entire film looks like one big long take. That they, they aren't, but they yeah. look like they are. Um, but I think this might have been what, like, the first big budget Hollywood film to do that. I think it's certainly ambitious, and I, it, I, I liked it. It certainly added more to the film. <laughs> I liked the way it just. It felt like you were yeah. a character. It felt like you were there and just following people and doing whatever, like doing the thing that Children of Men does, where sometimes it just kind of. Uh, pans away and just shows you something like this film had to do that because there is no cut yeah just the way it like effortlessly passes the narrative across to the characters who are relevant for that moment and even if it's happening simultaneously like they'll just walk across and the camera will just stay in place and it was just so so well done i loved it the only other film that i can think that has a similar kind of vibe of just people talking in corridors and the camera following is um the steve jobs documentary no not documentary the the biopic mm -mm. To be fair, there was two. The one just called Steve Jobs, I think. Um, it was written by Aaron Sorkin, and there's literally like four scenes in it. That's the oh, entire wow. film, which is just um, four moments before four different um, Apple events. Um, and it's this kind of style of just conversations in corridors and the camera kind of just following them along. 
Um, and this, I think, is such a cool way of storytelling, especially with it being basically like a, a kind of character drama. And there's a lot of characters interacting with each other for the first time, and there's a lot of different dynamics going on because of these being vastly different characters. Um, just kind of being a fly fly on the wall for that is really really cool. Yeah, no, that's the that's the a perfect way to describe the audience's point of view in this film. You're very much a fly on the wall of all like the 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 chaos that's going on inside this theater and all of the things that these characters are undergoing. Like you feel like you're a part of it. You feel like you're breathing down their neck and watching every little bit of it. It's so immersive. It definitely is. Like this could just be a film that's set inside a theater and it's a dude who's clearly having some form of like midlife crisis and it would be probably fine. But the execution that they went with makes it so much more interesting. Definitely. Especially like a few things where the camera like will be following someone and then go follow someone else. And like the characters need for that person that you were just following not to hear what's currently being said. And it's sort of, it adds a little bit of um, tension as to like, you know that they're nearby because you were just with them. It's not like the camera cuts to a different scene and you don't have context as to where everybody is. At all times, you kind of know where everyone is because you were either just with them or you're about to just be with them. Mm. I'm sure there was there was like one cut in the film, wasn't there? I'm like, I'm sure there was one when at the end, after he shoots himself on the stage, it pans up to the lights and then it fades out and fades into the hospital ceiling. Yes, um, because that next scene is in his first person perspective. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. That was like that's the last thing he saw after he's I guess been in some form of coma or something. So, so it kind of has to be, but at the same time, I don't think it's a cut. I think it's a fade. Yeah. Which I get is technically the same thing, but again, they don't actually just cut. They go from one shot to another seamlessly, yeah. I guess. Less seamless than the rest of the film, but still, nonetheless. So, um, one of the, the things that first attracted me to this film was like the, like the almost meta casting of Michael Keaton as Birdman go on so i thought this film was written for michael keaton but i did a bit of research and it wasn't this this, the script was written and they approached michael keaton for the project so michael keaton played batman in the first two tim burton batman films and i love that they got him in for this role as this middle-aged actor who's because there's parallels between his main character and him as a real person yes yes exactly and there's a lot of cast members in this movie with links to superhero films, which I guess is hard to avoid nowadays, given the fucking giant spread <laughs> amongst true. the entire world. But like the two main characters, um, Michael Keaton's and Edward Norton's, both were in Marvel films. Emma Stone was in the um, the middle set of Spider-Man films. Yeah. Emma. The Andrew Garfield ones. Yep. I'm trying to think of who else there was. Uh, Zach Galifer, Gal- Gal- Galifer, the guy, Zach. Galifer. Zach from Hangover. Galifianakis, I think it is. Yeah, that guy. He was in the Lego Batman movie. He was fucking great in this film. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I didn't think it was him because of how well acted he was. <laughs> it's like, oh, this guy's a good actor. It can't be him. I just, well, I'd never seen him do anything that wasn't comedy. So it very much surprised me. Like, yeah. I, I mean, it's, I guess it just says a lot about me assuming the guy's range. But like... It's well, yeah, but if you've only ever seen him do one thing, it's hard to assume that he can do something else. Like 
say Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems, it's like, oh, wow, Jesus Christ, that guy can actually act. Yeah. Yeah, if you've just watched, like, Jack and Jill. And then... <laughs> yeah, there's a fair bit of difference. For context, we, me and Matt were just slamming <laughs> just all of Adam Sandler's films just before we started recording. <laughs> um, while, while we're talking about people who contributed, um, the director, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñarito, um he has done like two big budget films okay. that's it like he's done a lot of smaller stuff and then he, birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance um was like his first like hollywood big hollywood yeah. film um like a budget of 18 million his second and currently only other big hollywood film was the revenant jesus so this dude this dude is doing some good stuff yeah, from out of nowhere like strength to strength that's impressive yeah real good he has a new film coming out at some point soon i think um so keep your eyes open for that because it's probably going to be good if this track record is anything to go by yeah i just wanted to just draw attention to the fact that this guy clearly knows what he's doing Mm. um and i believe got leonardo dicaprio his long-awaited oscar so yeah you know that's the good shit (laughs) Yeah, and this won a lot of awards too. Uh, I think Birdman might have won Best Picture. Oh, I mean, I, that does ring a bell, actually. Yeah, and it's good. It probably deserved to. I don't remember how many films I've seen from 2014, but this is one that I do remember, and it's damn good. So, like, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. There was, there was a couple of bits that did, st- like, stick out at me. Go on. So, there was, like, the... It was there was the really awkward lesbian kiss that was just like I didn't overly see the point of it. It felt gratuitous. It felt unnecessary. Like it felt like there could have been a subplot between those two characters, maybe exploring some affair from that point onwards. But it felt very It was kind of one and done, wasn't it? Like it was there, it happened and then it was never mentioned again and it didn't wasn't mentioned previously i guess yeah and it was almost like it it was an attempt to make these characters more relevant in the plot when when all they were really there for was to antagonize the two male leads as as well as star in the play both of them were just basically bouncing off of their male counterparts both in and out of the play for various reasons and, and to be fair, if, you, if you're going to do that, um, I don't remember what the test's called. <laughs> I want to say Turing test. I know it's not the Turing test. The, I know which one uh, you mean. The test to see whether or not you're actually writing female characters as human beings rather than um, just uh, using them as like wives of the male characters. If you were going to do a scene for like to prove that you're not doing that, having them just be lesbians and kiss one another is the worst possible thing that you could do it it, it just not to say that 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 was why but no i know what you know. i know what you mean like that was my my issue with those two characters was that the the little depth they had felt fragile and that moment just felt weird like yeah. i just and that that to be honest that yeah, was my I mean, only negative takeaway from the film like that was the only my and i think this is just me a negative thing for me is i felt far more drawn in to edward norton and emma stone's character and even zach um zach's character Mm. i felt way more drawn into them than i did michael keaton okay 
I don't think that's necessarily actually something you can hold against the film just because I don't find the the kind of the washed up dad in a midlife crisis an interesting character when it's done like at all yeah um like that would probably be a critique that I would have of Logan is that I just don't care about that kind of character yeah that that whole archetype but that's more of a that's that's more of a me issue than it's an issue with the film it's like the only way of fixing that would be to have a completely different character, which kind of misses the point because the entire story depends on it being a guy going through a midlife crisis. Yeah. Kind of. So, yeah, like, I I can't really hold that against the film. It's integral to the plot, but I wasn't as drawn to his character as I was some of the others. It may also be that I prefer Ed, Edward Norton and Emma Stone as actors than I do Michael Keaton, but whatever. So, can we jump a little bit in depth with the the whole one take thing? Because it not only is it impressive for this film, obviously, it adds so much to the immersion and the intrigue. It is incredibly hard to do. Like, the amount of choreography that goes into just the cinematography is, like, mind-blowing. Like, so normally when you're kind of doing um, staging, which is quite an apt naming for this. So staging refers to like what uh, actors would do on stage where where they would be standing and what lines they would say in what positions. That translates to film, except normally you would do the staging, but you would also pick different camera angles for different parts of the staging. This film has none of that. It has absolutely zero, which means everything has to be perfect. Like, you can't fix the staging and bits of things that have to be kind of stapled together in the edit because there is no edit. The camera has to be at the right place at the exact right time or the cuts don't work and or you run out of time. Like, if the dialogue finishes too early and the camera needs to then go over here to go through this door to then join a different conversation, if the dialogue for the previous conversation finishes too early, then the camera's just going to have to walk off really awkwardly which can't happen which means everything has to be perfectly timed which is something that most films just ignore they don't have to do that this film had to do that for every single scene including a massive amount of scenes that had like either cgi or like wires in so like the the first scene where he's meditating he's hovering in in the room so he's presumably on wires or he's sat on a green screen box but normally you would film that scene and then for the shot afterwards where maybe he's stood up, um, you don't have to worry about the, the green screen box, the wires. He won't be wearing them anymore. You will, you know, film the bit that you need, stop the camera, take the wires off or remove the box, whatever, and then carry on as normal. They can't do that. They're doing it in one take, which means that green screen box, all those wires have to be attached to him until he's no longer on set. And then the camera goes elsewhere. That, that is the only option. That is incredibly impressive. As well as that scene specifically where he's meditating and floating in the middle of the room, there are mirrors all down one side of that room. Yeah. Which means the camera, if it is caught in the mirror, has to be like rotoscoped out and basically like it has to be CG'd, if you like, the, the area behind it so that you can no longer see the camera. That had to happen within a film that's doing it in one take. That is incredibly impressive. 
I would love to see the exact point that they did do the cuts between the different takes. So that I know a decent amount. Yeah, we previously mentioned as we were chatting about this, how they do it a lot with the, I forgot the term for it now, like the swoosh. A whip pan. A <laughs> whip pan. Yeah, a swoosh. A whip pan. A swoosh yeah. pan. A swoosh pan. We mentioned how they'd use the use of the swish pans to cut between the different takes. This is the first major thing I've seen with the application of the like the one shot, the long shot. To be fair, the only other film that I can think that's done it for the entire film is 1917, which I haven't seen yet. Um, every other film will do it for like five minutes or whatever. Um, that also puts context to the fact that The Revenant has this amazing fight scene in it. Um, that's all one take. That oh. must have been barely anything for them <laughs> compared to doing this. <laughs> I do, I do like it, and that like, just it makes things feel so seamless, and like you are stuck within this big panoramic world. Because I believe the opening of an Avengers film does it. I think it's the second one with that Joss Whedon did, like that has a big opening fight scene with all the main characters in and that just has one long continuous shot passing between all the different characters and all this different action going on and it has just such an, a nice way of stitching the world and the events that are currently underway together mm -hmm. there is some really nice moments specifically there's a moment in in this um i can't pinpoint it exactly i think it might be the scene as the the guy who was in Edward Norton's place originally, it, the scene where the light falls on his head, I believe it's the bit before that. So the way that they go down to the stage is they're in the rigging up above, um, ish. They're they're in like the offices up above and back a bit, and the camera comes around onto the rigging, and then I think it just goes like it's on a jib, so it goes down. Yeah, it just lowers down onto, onto the, the stage. Yeah. I believe, I think, there is a time jump. I'm sure in the context of the film, they are not set at the same time. Like the upstairs scene and the downstairs scene are like a day later or something. I'm sure. Or it might be the scene where Edward Norton turns up. So uh, like they've only just said, oh, I'll call him. And then by the time they're downstairs, he's already there. So I think yeah. they actually mask time jumps, even though it's still one shot, which is so cool. It is super nice. And it adds this almost dreamlike feeling at points of things just flowing so seamlessly into each other. Which is also a perfect fit in for him yeah, actually having definitely. the hallucinations and yeah. whatever. Like the stylistic choices of this film work perfectly with the themes. I 100% agree. I feel like the like the superhero bit, like the actual kind of the bit where he turns properly into Birdman, like quite near the end of the film. Um, I feel like that. I don't want to say that tonally it felt completely off because I get why it was there, but I didn't particularly enjoy it as a <laughs> sequence. Um, I don't. I don't know if that's really something I can mark it down for because it kind of needed to be in there to 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 make the point. But yeah, for I, don't know. I, 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 I I didn't care for it for its execution i guess fair enough that's, that's allowed what i did really really like the execution of is that very very end scene though you know where he's, he's in his pants walking through like Times square like because he's going all the way around the building um and then he walks in and does the final scene with the gun he's like 
like the the audience is shocked and then like the you've seen him do this scene maybe three times and his performance here is so much better because it's sort of real um he holds up a finger gun because he doesn't have the actual prop but it just works so well and it's like it couldn't have been a better like sort of end before the actual end for yeah. the film especially because like you've been following them doing this play this entire time and then you actually get to see the final scene in this really um powerful moment so um you just mentioned the sequence where he's running outside in his pants yes down is it times square that he's running through i, I believe it's times square yeah because i think they're on broadway um, which broadway intersects yeah times square yes um so they didn't have the budget to shut off times square so those were real people that michael keaton was running through a crowd in his oh, pants by amazing and the marching drum band was hired by the people in the film as a distraction okay so people would be watching them and then turn to look at this guy running through the crowd in his pants oh that's that's really cool uh, it's, oh i get like that yeah. makes sense because in um that's eric andre um bizarre i swear this is going somewhere um eric andre was on about um for the eric andre show all of the public things that they do um they do in new york because the filming rights for filming in public are the most lenient in america um i believe you don't okay. have to get someone to sign um you don't you, oh like a release yeah, you don't have to sign a, a waiver or whatever to get permission to put someone on screen that you filmed in public um which then that story that you've just said makes perfect sense because they didn't need to then ask all those people in public whether they could use the footage or not because by law in new york they're just allowed to that's amazing yeah so if you ever want to have a film with a load of extras in and don't have the budget just go film in new york i guess that's what birdman did sorry with an 18 million pound well an 18 million dollar budget they didn't have the money to pay new york to close off times square yeah, but think of like how many fans they had to hire to call down Edward Norton's ego. <laughs> I, I, I found it weird that his, that his character was almost a caricature of himself. Like, yeah. I, I just, I don't know if that was intentional or what. Well, as you said, Michael Keaton was basically doing the same thing too. Yeah, it was bizarre, and Emma Stone kind of looks like a meth addict anyway. <laughs> so I'll, it, I, it, I it all worked right. out. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little bit. Uh, yeah, did you know there was an alternate ending to this film? Like the original ending was different to the one we got. No. Do you? Can you talk me through it? I can. So I don't know what the cutoff was, but basically the final scene, rather than being what we got, it was meant to echo the start of the film so you know how the start of the film michael keaton was in his dressing room gearing himself up to go on for the play and in the background you saw the birdman post almost like it's overshadowing him and who mm -hmm. he is now the final scene of the movie was meant to be an echo of that scene featuring johnny depp preparing to play michael keaton's character in the play and in the background was meant to be pirates of the caribbean five poster and it was meant to be the exact same back and forth with Michael Keaton and Birdman with Johnny Depp and a, a copyright friendly Jack Sparrow voice. <laughs> what? So it was, it, the, the idea was that it was meant to be like this sort of 
ever perpetual loop of actors attempting to escape unobscurity and attempt to claw their way back from typecast roles. Was that filmed or was that just in the script? I believe that was just in the script. I don't think that was ever filmed. Because if they filmed that, that would have been so good. And that, do you know what? That genuinely echoes then the fact that Michael Keaton previously being Batman was something that they did think about. Yeah. Which makes sense. They they would have been aware of what films he's been in previously anyway, but that's really interesting. That's that's kind of cool. I don't know if that's a, a sort of uh for for a film that takes things quite subtly. Um I don't know if that's a bit too on the nose. Uh, yeah. Especially because it's it's like, "Oh, yeah, like here's a film that actually exists that they, you know, are obviously parody, yeah, I know what you mean. but this isn't that kind of thing." Even though I guess it is. That's the commentary. But while you um, briefly mentioned that, one thing I did like that I mentioned when we talked about the Iron Giant like a, a couple of months ago was that they referenced real life pop culture, real life movies. Where, like in the Iron Giant, they they mentioned Superman rather than mm-hmm. whatever own original film. Like here, they were talking about the Avengers franchise. They were talking about Iron Man, things like that, and that just made it hit home a lot harder. Yeah, it cements it as if this is a real story in the world. Yeah, rather exactly. Than it being an I don't know, alternative dimension or something. Yeah, and that's always when a movie goes out of its way to solidify that it's trying to tell a story within the same world that you're in. That this could take place. This could be taking place somewhere right now. Like there's that many actors in the world. There could be someone desperate to become trending again or whatever. And it's I don't know. It's always it's something that I love. Yeah, it's it's kind of subtle, but it it does a really good job of um, making it feel real. I guess like yeah. this isn't a story about some you know some fictional story of a washed up actor or whatever. This is potentially real, and you know the casting choices help with that. I agree. Yeah, like having Edward Norton be someone who a lot of people would just like to punch in the face play a character that everyone would like to punch in the face mm, kind of makes sense so good casting guys <laughs> it didn't take much effort to make me hate the character that you wanted me to hate <laughs> although he does have a, a nice amount of depth like the the conversations with Emma Stone in particular um when she's like, do you piss people off on purpose or is that just who you are? And they're like, he kind of, he, he sort of almost understands how people see him and he thinks he's kind of okay with that. But like, you can see that he's sort of conflicted. Like he knows that he's seen as a dick, but like, is he okay with that? And it's, it's like, there is a bit of sort of, um, I don't know, depth to the character there that he isn't just, oh, I'm a bad guy because I'm a bad guy, you know. Um, what was it? Harley Quinn in Suicide Squad, where she's like, well, we're the bad guys. We're supposed to do bad stuff or whatever. It's just, he actually had a bit of depth to his character. So, yeah, like, this film was written really well. Uh, it was acted really well. It was shot incredibly. Um, and it was telling quite a cool little interesting story it, it was also drummed really well um <laughs> on that just the the very nice minimalism soundtrack it was just a guy on a drum kit and how that wove seamlessly into the background and it's just oh so good 
so wonderful. It was. Like, there was a lot of attention to detail in terms of the stylistic choices of this film. And all of them, like, all of them worked well. Yeah, so with that, I'm going to ask you what I always ask you. What would you give this out of 10? Um, I'd give it a 9. Like, as a whole... Nice. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I previously mentioned about a couple of the flaws I have with the writing and some of the characters, but I've a big thing for me when it comes to rating movies is the emotional impact that they have on me afterwards and whether they have a lasting impact. Um, and this is the first film that I've seen since Joker that's had such a sort of resonance with me that I took away from my viewing. And I I really liked it. And I hope I get a similar feeling out of however many rewatches I'll get out of it in years to come. Mm. And there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of take from this um, in rewatches that, you know, that you maybe didn't notice. Like where the cuts are and that kind of stuff that you can kind of now just intensely watch for now that you know the story. Yeah, like looking out for those little Easter eggs and the little details. Yeah, which I think this film has... A fair amount of. Um, I would give this an eight. So I've, I've finally worked out, I guess, what my own um, rating system is. So basically from one, like one out of 10 to seven out of 10 is just generally how good the film is. And then eight, nine and 10 is like sort of, as you were saying, like emotional impact. Like if I, if I think the film was perfectly done, but I don't particularly care about it, it still gets a seven. Like I can't justify giving it a higher score um so this film gets an eight because it's it's on its way to like having that impact i really really like it um i just don't like it enough to give it a nine or a ten so that's where it sits this film is real good um it's also on netflix so you know go watch it if you haven't sorry for spoiling it all by the way if you haven't seen it Okay, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. If you were listening on Spotify, a follow would be greatly appreciated. Alternatively, you can check us out on Letterboxd or Twitter, where you can see us chat more shit about films and many other things. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, bye, bye everybody.